Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news podcast. And please don't forget the donate button at the top of the webpage. As we are recording this podcast, Joe Biden is closing in on 270 electoral votes, and it seems likely eventually he'll be inaugurated president of the United States. There are still many legal shenanigans that can take place, including some dramatic from the Supreme Court, but even senior people in the Republican Party apparently expect Trump will lose. That said, why the hell was this election even close? I don't have to list the reasons why Trump should have been trounced and the Dems should have won the Senate and not lost seats in the House, as it looks like they are. If the Democrats don't take the Senate, and at the moment it looks like they won't, then there will be at least two years of gridlock, exactly what Wall Street wanted. Now joining us to answer the question, what's the matter with America, is Thomas Frank. He's a political analyst, historian, and journalist. He co-founded and edited the Baffler magazine. He's written several books, most notably What's the Matter with Kansas in 2004, Listen Liberal in 2016, and his most recent book is The People Know. Thanks for joining us, Thomas. Paul, it is my pleasure to be here once again, one more time after one more disastrous election for Team yeah. Liberal. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so, And here we are again. Now, the problem is, is when you and I interview, we always have so much fun. And the problem is, it ain't no laughing matter what's going on here, but I, I know. suppose, what I know. the hell? I, uh, the, the only reason I, I, I chuckle about it and and I know it's not funny. It's 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 deeply frustrating, is because I've you know written about it for so many years. It's like we're in this eternal return, and and yet and it's all out there. You know anybody can see this, and yet the the the, the people responsible refuse to do anything about it. Anybody can like I've been writing about this for years. You've been talking about this for years, but they refuse to you know to do what needs to be done. To make sure it doesn't happen again, there's this, there's a certain, so there's this kind of comical nature to it. I, I think the problem for the corporate Democrats, obviously, first of all, it's their own self-interest, but I, I don't know what they really believe in their heart of hearts in terms of what they want. But yeah. I think they're they are terrified that the financial sector will simply go over to the Republicans whole hog. If they don't play this centrist Wall Street pleasing game, if they really go into what a left, if you want to use the term left populism, but which is, as you pointed out in your book and our other interview, that's actually where populism. Yeah, that's what it is. Comes from. Yes. It was left populism. But forget even the word populism. If they just go to a FDR-ish kind of position. Um, Wall Street is not uh, going to like it. And so yeah. they play the, they play this tightrope act uh, and then they get fooled by pollsters where they think they're going to win. Um, and they, how and could they, how could they be so wrong this time again? Cause it's a, wait, it's cause it's a crappy formula, Paul. It's the whole, the whole formula is designed to like at best eke out a tiny little marginal victory by sort of, you know, fighting over this swing faction of, um, of, uh, uh, you know, a highly educated, uh, 
voters in the suburbs who used to be Republicans and today are are more you know inclined to the Democrats. That's what they're fighting over, and that's not a whole lot of people. And so this is by its very nature, this is a strategy that is that is not designed to yield Roosevelt style majorities. That was something different. That was when you know Roosevelt had the you know working masses of America. Uh, behind him in enormous numbers, and that's what the Democratic Party used to be. But they they turned their back on that strategy, uh, as you know, Paul. It it took them decades to do it, but they you know they do it all the time. I mean, they're they, I mean they've been doing it all along, and they have no intention of going back. This is sort of the uh, today's the the leadership of the Democratic Party. This is their sort of foundation generational. Uh, gift. This is what they brought to the Democratic Party was to turn their backs on Roosevelt's Democrats and make the Democrats into this party that could compete for Wall Street donations and uh, Silicon Valley money and uh, and those and those affluent, highly educated uh, voters in the suburbs. And they think this is a triumph, by the way. This is a triumph, okay? Because uh, they, you know, every now and then they can win an election, and and yet they get, you know. Uh, as one of my friends said on Twitter today, all the consultants get Teslas. <laughs> you know, every day I'm, I'm here in Bethesda, Maryland. I'm surrounded by Democratic lobbyists and consultants. And you know how much money they spent just on their Senate races? Over a billion dollars just on their Senate races. I think they picked up one seat. You it's know? crazy. Yeah. Yeah. But somebody got rich there, Paul. <laughs> it just wasn't you and me. And it sure as hell wasn't the, you know, working people of America. Bernie Sanders in the last few weeks was telling Biden, practically pleading at same with Biden, to hammer this economic message, a real vision of what a, a different economy would look like. And he, he also said forcefully, let AOC get out front, use her to help gather the youth vote, the Latino vote, and they just wouldn't do it. It's it's like what you've said before. It's, it's exactly not like they don't the like the left. They hate the left of the party. Yeah, yeah. it's the left represents that throwback as sort of, you know, it's a relic of that older Democratic Party that this generation of, of Democratic leaders suppressed. And they they absolutely despise it. By the way, this is I mean, there's so many uh, books and articles that I'm never going to get to write in my life. But one of them, this completely mystifies me is why they hate Bernie Sanders so much. He's really not a menacing guy. He's not a mean guy. He's not a uh, an evil guy. He's kind of friendly. Uh, you know, he's not threatening. Uh, and they hate him so much. And I, I'm, I'm totally puzzled by that. But well, I think that because he almost won. Well, he almost won, but so what? You know, somebody has to win. And it's because he's not part of this faction and he's not part of this generational shift in the Democratic Party. By the way, uh, you you mentioned at the start, you know, uh, you know, who are they and what do they stand for? Well, Biden, in this sense, is like, it, who knows what he stood for? It's I mean, the, the, well, he stood for one thing. That's for sure. He's a nice guy. He's a friendly man. But, oh, my God, did they ever get played again? I do remember in 16, I wrote, I wrote that famous story for The Guardian about Trump winning. And I wrote it after watching Trump on the Internet do rally after rally after rally, totally unanswered by Hillary Clinton in the closing weeks of the 2016 election. He just did it again. And Biden made there was zero response. And we still don't really know what Biden stands for. I mean, we have people he has in his campaign, he has people on the left and he has people way to the right. You know, these retreads from the Clinton administration. 
And and a group of neocon Republicans. Yep, now. that's right. He's got those guys in there too, and they're going to be amply rewarded for their <laughs> for the great success, right? That they that they just did, that they just engineered. No, this is a, a so you know four more years for Trump to build his 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 insane movement, uh, and yeah, we don't anyhow. So I I've thought about this a lot. You, to go back to your very first question, you know, this near miss, right? So Biden barely just squeaked by against one of the worst presidents we've ever seen. What the hell? Uh, assuming he does, I mean, it's not. It yeah, it's not. Like it's not totally will. nailed down yet, but I expect I expect to hear that the AP has announced it very shortly. Uh, yeah. I mean, sometime today is what I mean. But here's the deal: you and I and everybody else said. All along, this is an well. I don't know if you said this, but me and all my dumb friends who are listening to the American mass media said this: that this election is going to be a referendum on Trump. And look how he look how he bungled the pandemic. I said it myself many times. Look how he bungled the pandemic. Look what a lousy president he's been. Look at how he, the economy has collapsed. Look at his idiotic tweets. His you know the, the the stupid things he says in public. All of the lies that he tells. Look at his bigotry. Okay. But I think this also was a referendum on liberals. If you go back and look at conservative rhetoric, it's all about uh, the the you know the horror of this woke, you know the the horror of wokeness, the horror of political correctness, you know the all of the crazy stuff that's going on. Uh, and in some ways, they were able to engineer this as a referendum on us. Uh, and I think that's uh, you're going to see that is obviously good. There, look, I'm on the left. Obviously, I don't want to be included in that. Us. I know. I'm. I'm just. It's rhetorical. Okay. I know yeah. it's not you. You're. You're a Canadian for God's sakes. No, I, I'm. I'm a dual citizen, so I got half of the us would have been me, but I don't want even that. So. <laughs> Anyhow, the uh, one of the really annoying phenomena of 2016 that you and I have talked about before was all of these pundits who came out after the election was over and were saying like, I hate the American people. These are liberals, mind you. Liberals denouncing the people. Uh, well, they're doing it again, Paul. If you go on Twitter, which is where all the commentary happens today, they're, nowadays, they're doing it again. It's like, the, you know, we didn't fail, the people failed. We, you know, they failed us, not the other way around. Well, I'm, I'm here to tell you that attitude is a, is, is, is a loser. All of this contempt that liberals constantly show for ordinary people, you know, uh, uh, demanding that we genuflect before this or that credentialed authority, you know, calling people uh, names, you know, the whole liberalism of scolding is what I like to call it. Um, this really rubs people the wrong way. Now, it's it's. It, I think everybody knows that. the The problem is when you 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 say this, and then your your mainstream pundits here in America are like, "Well, what else is there?" They can't even imagine, Paul, a liberalism of a majoritarian liberalism that appeals to a huge number of people. But you know, you talk about Bernie Sanders, and you talk about the the sort of like your broad based. Uh, uh, economic liberalism. I'm here to tell you that has like 80% appeal. That's the kind of stuff that powers, you know, that powered Franklin Roosevelt, you know, winning these overwhelming um, landslides. If you want a landslide and you're a liberal or you're on the left, that's how you do it. You know, you don't do it with this other crap, this, you know, liberalism of the highly educated elites scolding everybody else for being so stupid. The other thing I find in a way surprising, although I, again, I get it because of who they are, 
But for years and years, I've been arguing with corporate Democrat types that you cannot have a media like MSNBC and, and then CNN, which became as bad or worse, than, that's purely a partisan set of cheerleaders for the Democratic Party, and think that those sections of the working class and the population that might vote for Trump are going to watch it. There is such a media divide in this country yeah. that, that the, the corporate Democrats and such don't actually understand. They can't even talk to half the country. They're not listening to their media, either whether it's radio or television. Yeah. So it, it, whatever their talking points, it's almost irrelevant. It just doesn't have a way to get to people. I would actually go further than that. That is totally true. But there is also this sense in which, to keep talking about Roosevelt, if you will, there's a sense in which media unanimity, and there's one of the things that you've missed in this country, Paul, the last four years is because you're in Canada, you've missed it, is the- No, no, I've been in the US most of the last four years. Okay, but this airtight cultural hegemony of liberalism, uh, where they are, you know, the the, the whole, what they call cancel culture, which is kind of a weird euphemism for hegemony. These people- run the show. And if you speak out, you will be punished. And it's happened to friends of mine who are totally decent, uh, like way to the left kind of people, you know, really good people. Uh, But you cannot challenge this hegemony publicly. And you see it in the news media. It's, it's, it's everywhere. It's on, it's, you know, art world, it's in the medicine world, it's in the universe, in higher education, it's everywhere you go. And uh, this is a recipe for turning people off. In 1936, the media did the exact same thing to Roosevelt. They were on the other side back then. They were very, very, very conservative, run by, you know, newspapers were owned by these very wealthy men, like what's his name in Chicago, McCormick. And um, they hated Roosevelt and they came together against him with unprecedented unanimity. Uh, attacking him like there'd be a news a city with two or three papers. All of them would be against Roosevelt attacking him on the front page. Every news story was biased. Uh, you know, just this in, incredible climate of hysteria against Roosevelt. And the, you know, one of the journalism studies of the day that I was reading basically said, you know, then Roosevelt proceeds to win this uh, incredible landslide. He won 48 states. <laughs> you know, it's just this wipeout. And, and they attribute it in part, not only to the fact that he was popular and was doing a good job as president, but to this incredible snob, uh, snob union against him, this sort of common front of the assholes, you know, the, the, the rich and the, uh, you know, the, 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 the rich and the conservative newspaper owners, newspaper barons, and it's satirized in movies of the period. Uh, uh, what is it called? Meet John Doe. It's a movie of the, or, or Citizen Kane, you know, uh, which isn't really about the thirties, but Meet John Doe is, it's a Capra movie where this newspaper owner is plotting this kind of malign campaign. You know? But uh, yeah, the public hated these people, absolutely hated them. And uh, we walked right into the trap. It, I mean, it's it, the exact same thing all over again. I mean, Trump is no Roosevelt. Trump is a, just a jackass, but uh but the, the the mistake is exactly the same. Well, it's what you've said over many times. The the the, the right has captured the anti elitism, even though they represent yes. the worst parts of the yes. elite. Well, they used to. They're slowly losing them. But yeah, big oil, you know, big polluters. Yeah, yes, that is exactly but, right. And they're but, but they're how, they're going to ride want... that for the for the rest of our lives. 
Oh God, I hope not. But part of the pro, I go back to this media issue. You got to, uh, Paul. Just, uh, Paul- just, just. You got to treat it as a spectator sport. Otherwise, you're going to go crazy. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not going crazy. So, <laughs> the, 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 what Fo- what Fox did, and I think it's a it's a very important piece of how this unfolded. Fox showed a business model, not yes. as much the yes. political model. It was the business model that you make money throwing red meat to us to a segment of the society, meaning the the hard right, yep, and just keep throwing red meat at them, and you will make money. Yeah, MSNBC and CNN start falling down. They start really losing uh, to uh, Fox, and they start adopting a similar business model which is totally anti-Trump, totally anti-Fox, no journalism, you know, quote unquote liberal, if you want to even call it that, red meat to their base. And there's no journalism left, which means the people watching Fox who might be willing to look at a a, a news network that actually did journalism and was willing to critique Obama in a serious way and willing you know, to go after the corporate Democrats and so on. Journalistically, there's no such thing on a mass scale. Yeah, in America, so, that's true. And I'm, I'm, I'm living testimony to it. I used to be on there all the time until I started criticizing Obama. Uh, and that's, uh, I mean, friendly criticism, remember, but that even that is not acceptable. Now, how's that for freaky in the land of the free press? You know, that's crazy. Uh, and it's uh, it's so to go back to what you said about Fox News, you're exactly right. I mean, that's the whole cable revolution uh, is when they figured out, you know, you can make uh, you can make tons of money just by hitting a small demographic. You don't have remember in the old days where there's only three networks you tried for these gigantic, you know, mass audiences, lowest common denominator, all that stuff. But cable comes along and they start figuring this out. And it was Roger Ailes who was Nixon's campaign manager. Do you remember this? Roger Ailes was the boss of Fox News, and he figured out something very simple and yet today so obvious that a lot of this is really good entertainment. People get caught up in these stories. Uh, You know, the stories have a natural kind of uh, human appeal. You know, it's all about, uh, uh, you know, Christians being persecuted or ordinary Americans being disrespected or, you know, whatever the fantasy, the war on Christmas, you know, whatever the like nutty fantasy of the day is, that stuff nevertheless is is really compelling and it really draws you in. And so news becomes entertainment and it becomes excellent entertainment. Remember Glenn Beck? You remember that show? It, I mean, yeah. to call that a news show was just uh, was was absurd, but it was really compelling. You know, you're surrounded by communists; they're all secret. The president himself is probably one. You know? It was it was berserk. It was nuts. Uh, but anyhow, the others then fi- were just they just followed suit. They're like, well, if he can do, if if Ailes can do this, we can do it too. And it is the result is absolutely right, is absolutely loathsome. It doesn't reach a mass audience. And when it does, like when you go flip on MSNBC, like like I watch NBC, I don't watch cable at all. But when I watch MSNBC or Fox or whatever, I, I mean, let's take MSNBC because I'm, I used to be on there all the time. I watch it and I'm like, what they're saying is not correct. I mean, they're, they're just flat wrong about all kinds of things. 
And anybody can see this. And then they go around fact-checking. I mean, where the fuck do they get off fact-checking? We, 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 we were on a comedy show that we pick up from this Australian juice media. and they have Oh, I saw great... that. Yeah, I watched it because you sent it an email. It was yeah, hilarious. Yeah. It's hilarious. <laughs> I, I, they have this wonderful word, which they didn't make up, but I didn't hear it anywhere else before that. And they call it, you know, they call about government shit fuckery. And God, <laughs> it's so appropriate. Uh, yeah, I had a I had a bizarre moment with Roger Roger Ailes. Uh, I was at the Democratic Party convention covering it in 2016 and had this little studio set up, and uh, I'm standing there and in watch walks Roger Ailes and he comes up. This is two weeks after he was fired from Fox. Yeah, I was going to say, wasn't that about the end for him? It was back. Then. It was two weeks after he'd been fired. He comes over to me and gives me this big hug. And and there's and, and people taking photographs. There's a film crew, and I said to my friend there, I said, "What could I have done wrong to deserve that? How on earth could?" He? And then he goes over to one of the women women working with us, puts his hand on her shoulder, and said and says to me, "You got to be good to your girls, Paul." Two weeks after he was fired for sexual abuse, was he was he drunk? No, they were making a documentary about him. He did it knowing he was going to be filmed. It was insane. And he had didn't you ever know met me. him before? Were you his friend or anything? Didn't know me from Adam. He was just going to different studios and shaking hands and whatever for this film to show that he was still that he was play. beloved. That he was beloved. But he's in such a bizarre bubble that he didn't have any idea. I think how, I know where you were. That you were, were you on Radio Row at the Democratic Convention? Well, yeah, because I, I remember that. I, I remember where yeah. that was. Yeah. It was TV row, not radio, because we had video and all that, but okay. more or less the same thing. Yeah, right? I, I remember that was, I think that's where it was at that. Oh, it was, I think it was the Republican convention where like um, uh, Roger Stone was on the set of the Young Turks and almost got in a fight, a fist fight. Do you remember this? Okay. I think that was the no. Republican convention. <laughs> no. It was something crazy like that. Maybe it was Breitbart. I don't know. I don't remember anymore. So I, I, I've been watching a lot of Fox the last week or two. In fact, I find it more interesting than CNN and MSNBC just because I hear stuff I wouldn't hear there. And and they're going on and on about the Latino vote uh, and how in, on the Rio Grande in Texas, the Latino vote may be the thing that swung it to Trump. Of course, there's lots of talk about Miami-Dade and anti-Venezuelan, anti-Cuban sentiment. So. Yeah. But one that it shouldn't be such a surprise to me, I think, because it's not like right wing demagogues don't do well in Latin America. They, yeah. you know, they do win elections. Well, it's not like any, but, but, any, any, any particular group is is automatically impervious to this stuff. It's just that we, we counted on Trump's racism to drive voters like that away. And so, the, you know, the Democratic Party has been uh, treating people like that, taking them for granted for decades and because they they count on Republican racism to keep them away from the Republicans, and I myself shared that. I mean, I thought Trump, no way, Trump can win with people like that because he's such such an asshole to them, you know. But uh, it's happening. I mean, I've also been saying sooner or later it's going to happen. The Republicans are going to reach out to these people and have success with them, uh, and it's just happening a little sooner than anybody thought it would. Bernie Sanders did better than anyone thought. He came close to winning. If the Democratic corporate elites hadn't all rallied to Biden uh, when all the other candidates dropped out and supported Biden, uh, yeah. Sanders might have 
given uh, even much more of a horse race. Who knows? He might have won. So there's a lot of popular support for the, a really progressive agenda out there. Yeah. Uh, so now it looks like we're, people are going to be facing probably a Biden presidency. Yeah. Probably a Republican Senate with giving full you know, gridlock so Biden can barely pass anything. And, and I'm thinking, and I, this is where I'll put on my Canadian hat, because maybe what I'm saying is impossible. But what I think what people need to be demanding of a Biden presidency is govern like there is no Senate. Don't reach across the aisle. Don't negotiate any deals whatsoever. Get legislation proposed in the House. Get it passed. And then do an executive order and say, I'm doing this because the House said it was OK and I'm saying it's OK and the Senate can go to hell. And just and see what govern. they do. And, that, and get, well, what can they do except fight certain things at the Supreme Court? And it will be a problem at the Supreme Court, but it will become, you know, this war where the, where the House, which is supposed to be the people's house, yeah. passes legislation. And, and the, the thing is this, if they don't do this on climate issues, and they don't do it on this big green infrastructure plan, but a legitimate one, not a greenwashing one that just makes some yeah. sections of Wall Street money, but an effective green, call it a green new deal or yeah. call it whatever. Biden I would love wants to see to that, it. but, but yeah. But if they don't do that, yeah. excuse, I'll drop the F bond too. We're, we're fucked. I mean, four more years of what will amount to climate denial because the Senate won't pass anything. Uh, we're running out of okay, time. Okay, fair enough. But there's also, and you're you're right about that. He has to. It, it would be nice if he could do something big, but uh, unfortunately for Biden, big things are off the table. But there's all kinds of things he can do unilaterally as president. And one of the things that you're going to be hearing, we're going to go right back to where Obama was. It's funny. Remember how Biden said, you know, basically status promising a status quo ante. What you didn't think was not the status quo ante of 2009 when Obama had both houses of Congress, but the status quo of 2015 when Obama had neither. <laughs> and you you might, I, I was uh, actively in journalism at the time here in America and was writing stories all the time, 14, I guess, about, uh, you know, because there was this whole um, narrative that you'd see from mainstream pundits in this country that Obama couldn't do anything as president. And it was wrong for people to demand that he could, that he do something because, you know, everyone knows the president just doesn't have a lot of power, which made me so angry because the president does have a ton of power and can do all kinds of things unilaterally. And uh, I went um, at the time, I'm going to do this again. I got to make a note to myself to write this again. Uh, I went and, uh, called all of these sort of policy experts here in D.C. and asked them, what could Obama do on your issue without either House of Congress? And they all they all had an answer. There were all kinds of things he could do. He didn't. And I wrote it. Right. I wrote the story. It's not like Obama couldn't figure this out. He didn't do any of them. I'll, I'll give you one example that remains true today. Antitrust. Antitrust is entirely at the at the at the uh, at the uh, 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 choice of the president at the discretion of the president, how to enforce antitrust. The la all our presidents since Reagan have declined to enforce it. Well, Biden can do whatever the hell he wants. He can call in whoever his attorney general, call him into the Oval Office and say, go to town on Google and uh, Microsoft and all the rest of them, Facebook, you know, uh, Apple, go get them. And uh, uh, Amazon, you know, go get them. Uh, and... 
it would be incredibly healthful for this country. And on the environmental front, he has enormous power. There's nothing he can't do. All he has well, to do is Well, I don't know about nothing, that, but there's, that, he has enormous power over polluters. and uh, So all of Trump's deregulation of polluters, that was all executive orders. I mean, can Biden, reverse Biden can reverse that, them all sure. on the first day. All. Yeah. But you what know? what if Trump can build a wall saying it's some kind of national emergency, there's no way, even if everything <laughs> Trump said was threatening America from Mexico and, and Latin America, let's say it was all true. Yeah. It doesn't come close to the threat of the climate crisis. Declare that a national emergency. Roll out the big, massive infrastructure project. Yeah. Hold hearings in the House yeah. about why it's necessary and, and just educate the whole population about the real science of climate and then find it out, fight it out at the Supreme court. Yeah. The Supreme court will try to kill it, but yeah. let's, you know, that war has to be fought. Yeah. You're, you're probably right. You're probably right. Uh, the, the most important thing is that people regard this as an upper class issue because environmentalism always has been one. And so that has to change. And they also uh, regard it as a threat to their way of life, like they won't be able, you know, the famous coal miners in West Virginia. Uh, they, and, and that has to, they have to be convinced that that's not the case, that in fact, there's all of these possibilities. And the way to go, to go ahead with that is just to go ahead with it. Just start building and they will see, you know, and it'll become obvious. Uh, but the, he has to have, uh, he has to get appropriations to do that. Uh, that's, I mean, the Senate is secondary in that process, but it, they, he still has to get their, their sign off. I don't know how he gets it. There's, but look, if Biden is, you know, Lyndon Johnson could do it. I mean, it's not it's not impossible. I know Mitch McConnell is, is like one of the biggest pricks ever to, to walk on the face of the earth. But 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 it can be done. You know, I did an interview with Bob Poland, the economist, the other day. If I'm if my memory is correct in Pennsylvania. It's something like 123,000 people have jobs in the fossil fuel business. This is like in yeah. natural gas and sure, but then there's stuff. all the stuff downstream from them. You know, you know how these things work. But if you promise through executive order that anyone that loses their job because of the phasing out of fossil fuel will get paid. Yeah. Until they're trained and have another job. Yeah, it's it's such a pittance of money. Okay, but, but the, the, reason uh, the by, problem with that, well, and we shouldn't go into the weeds like this, the policy weeds. The problem with that is that we've done stuff like that before in this country, and everybody knows that those promises were false. I mean, the Clinton administration was like retraining people after, you know, who were supposedly affected by NAFTA. Nobody got it jack shit. They, you know, it's like, and they always, uh, it's Democrats we're talking about here, so they always everything has to be means tested. You know, and not everybody gets it. And it's just, no, these are. Yeah, we got to get into the weeds here because it's a really clear example. See, but when I'm saying he should, he should. I'm not saying this because I think he will. I'm talking about what a people's movement, if there really emerges a popular people's movement, what could be demanded. And through executive order, it could be done. And it's a it's a pittance of money to promise full wages for people yeah. to simply just say, look, the whole society was in on this fossil fuel business. So it's not like a few workers should bear the burden. Yeah. But the reason Biden didn't already say that in Pennsylvania, because maybe he would have clearly won it, whether he will or not, we'll see, is because then he has to really admit and say that he is going to phase out fossil fuel in a, t in a reasonable time frame. Like the science is saying you need to do it. And he doesn't really want to come out and piss off the fossil fuel companies, so he won't say it. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. But once he's elected, of course.
By the way, so I'm going to move up to Canada. Got a, I, you know, I'm thinking somewhere in Saskatchewan. You know, it'll become nice and temperate up there. And uh... yeah, I, I am lobbying for uh, in the legislation that will build the wall that <laughs> people should be <laughs> allowed <me> in. Out. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I would say that. I'm going to try to push the people I do interviews with should get in, but I don't know if, I can, <laughs> if it works. Thanks for joining me, Thomas. You got it, Paul. Anytime. Anytime. By the way, not Saskatchewan, like the northern shore of Lake Superior. That's where I'm going. Well, you, you'll be able to grow mangoes there soon enough. <laughs> yeah, and that ain't funny. It's funny, but it ain't funny. Yeah, yeah. All right. Thanks, Thomas. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. Please don't forget the donate button at the top of the webpage. Mm-hmm.